Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. God Saad was with us a couple of years ago, and he's back again to discuss a new book. He is marketing professor at Concordia University, uh, author of, among other things, The Consuming Instinct, The Parasitic Mind, and now The Saad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. Great title and our, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Saad. Thank you so much. So good to be with you again. Now, in, in your long publishing career, which includes many papers on evolutionary behavior, uh, why have you turned your attention in 2023 to, to, uh, to happiness? I mean, uh, uh, we're all unhappy. <laughs> well, you know, if you would have asked me when I, when I came out with my last book, The Parasitic Mind, what, what the topic of my next book would be, you... you I would have had a 0% chance of telling you that it would be about happiness. So it wasn't sort of a, an a priori plan that I had. The way it happened is the way many things in life happen. It was through serendipity. What I would receive tons of emails from people telling me, how is it that you always seem to take on all these thorny subjects, but you always seem to be playful. There's always a twinkle in your eye. You, you always seem to be happy. You And people started calling me the happy warrior. So that was number one. Number two, uh, I noticed that whenever I would post something on social media that was prescriptive in nature, some advice or something, that would often be the, the, the tweets that would receive the most amount of attention. And so put those two together, I thought, well, you know, if, if people seem to obviously trust me, they, they take my words at heart, why don't I try to put together a, a book that explains how to be happy? Now, of course, it was a daunting task, Mark, because of all topics that philosophers have ever written about, perhaps none has been as frequent as, you know, prescriptions of how to live the good life. But what I try to do in the book is provide people with uh, some personal anecdotes coupled with ancient wisdoms backed up by contemporary science. Hopefully you've got a good read. I, I think what you do, and in your work generally, uh, 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 God, you, 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 you do just that. You bring ancient wisdom, empirical data, uh, real science, and again, wit, and, and you're, you, you're enjoying what you do, you know, you're, you're happy in, in your, in your condition, how nice, and people want guidance these days, they're not getting any good guidance, certainly from mass culture, or from our political leaders, they don't find much uh, to, 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 or at least the guidance they do get doesn't make them happy, I mean, is, is, does it make 15 year olds happy to tell them their country's a horrible place? Right. So right. let me let me let me get to more more on the book. Let's get to a a scientific question. Uh, as a psychologist, you naturally pose 
a very good opening question about evolution. Why has evolution allowed so many variations of personality to exist in the human population? I mean, we see personality traits that really are a little bit destructive, damaging uh, to people. Why haven't those been naturally selected out? Wow. I think of all the shows that I've done so far uh, on the happiness book, it's the first time that someone asks me about the evolutionary roots of personality heterogeneity. So uh, thank you and kudos for having done your, uh, your a priori work. Thank you, Mark. Uh, so look, imagine that, so I'll analogize in the following way. Suppose you've got two companies. They have completely different organizational cultures right one now it might be the case that my personality profile really fits very nicely with company a but doesn't fit very nicely with company b so what what makes me optimal for firm a is exactly what firm b is not looking for that's exactly what explains the evolution of personality heterogeneity the idea being that there are many micro ecosystems social social ecosystems that might select on different attributes. In some environments, being aggressive and bold really works well. In other environments, being restrained and somewhat more demure might be the optimal strategy. So evolution cannot, if you like, lock a single optimal personality profile because the question is, the, the reality is it depends. Plus, within an ecosystem, you typically want different individuals to precisely manifest different personality profiles, right? Whereas mm -hmm. on the other hand, many evolutionary adaptations are fixed precisely because they are singularly optimal. That's not the case for personality types. That's why we have many different personality profiles. Got it. Good. Well, do certain personality traits, do they cause unhappiness? And if so, why don't we expel them? <laughs> well, you, so I have a section early in the book where I talk about, you know, which types of personality profiles have been found to either correlate positively or negatively with happiness. And typically yeah. what psychologists do is as a first step, they just look at the big five, big, the big five personality traits, precisely because those are the traits on which we see the greatest variance amongst people. So traits like openness traits like agreeableness correlate positively with happiness traits like neuroticism correlate negatively with happiness and i'll just give you a, a, a quick example of how that will manifest itself daily on social media uh yesterday the babylon b are you familiar with the babylon b mark oh yes yeah <laughs> so they're a satirical site and they they posted some clip where they basically said, uh, you know, back, backup dancers are tired of being in the shadow of Lizzo. Lizzo is a singer who is rather uh, rotund. And so they were making a, a funny joke about, you know, a play of words on her weight. And so I retweeted it in a mock, angry, indignant tone saying, hey, as a former person of girth, and as a formerly differentiated weighted person, this is an affront and, you know, you could be whatever. So one person did not understand that I was being sarcastic and started coming after me. And so I simply retweeted that person. I said, someone, please guide this individual. And that person spent the next five hours doubling down. 
Well, that's not a prescription for happiness, Mike. Take it on the chin, realize that you didn't read sarcasm, laugh at yourself, and move on. <laughs> that's not funny, okay? That is not funny. All right. Uh, well, well, but I have an answer for everyone. If you're unhappy, you just have to make more money, right? Well, I wish it were that simple. Uh, so I actually talk exactly about this, Mark. Uh, so the classic study, although some have now questioned that inflection point, the classic study that is most often cited about this issue is that up to about $75,000, uh, uh, you know, uh, money does bring happiness. But beyond that inflection point, it doesn't. You know, the fact that Elon Musk has $200 billion doesn't mean that he is assured to be happier than, than us here in the, in the current conversation. Uh, precisely because, you know, money only brings you uh, the security of being able to put the food on the table, to be able to have a roof over your top. And actually, there's a lot of research that shows that when you contrast or, or place uh, against each other, spending money on possessions versus spending money on experiences the overwhelming research shows that the latter is what brings you more bang for your buck. In other words, if I take my whatever money I've saved and go to a, a safari to Namibia and then I go visit Argentina, that will bring me a lot more uh, downstream happiness than if I buy another pair of shoes and another Ferrari. So, so mm -hmm. it's definitely the case that money does not lead to happiness. In, in what you, you have a, an interesting term. You say that happiness is a, quote, positional emotion. What, what, what do you mean by that? So we are a social species, Mark, meaning that we constantly judge how well we are doing in, in the lot of life by comparing ourselves to relevant others. So, for example, the expression keeping up with the Joneses, right, very much fuels a lot of the what's called the positional economy, right? Oh, those neighbors of mine think that they are hot shots because they've got a Porsche. Well, I'll show them. I'll even get a better car, right? And so a lot of the calculus that we use in judging how well we're doing is in, in contra to how others are doing. So example, I cite a very fun study that speaks to exactly your question. So if you look at the relationship between frequency of sex and happiness, well, it wouldn't surprise many of our listeners here that the mo on average, the more sex that someone has, the happier they are. But that's not the full story. What's actually as important is not only that I have a lot of sex, but I have more sex than my friend Mark. Now, that really makes me happy. And so I joke in the book that make sure to have a lot of sex and have only chaste nuns as your friends, because then that's the optimal path to happiness, because I'm having a lot of sex and all of my friends are having a lot less sex than me. That makes me happy. Very good. Uh, you, you pose the question of the relationship between happiness and certain ideologies. Now, you, you know quite well the, the woke ideology, they're, they're not happy people. Now, here, here's the question. Is it that unhappy people are drawn to the woke stuff? Or does the woke stuff at least aggravate right. their unhappiness? Yeah, that's so the, the, the proverbial chicken and egg question. I, I think it's a bit of both. But in the book, I offer a speculative, albeit very plausible, explanation for one of those causes. So the fact that woke people are unhappy because existentially they think that the world that they live in 
is a soiled one, is a bad one. Just around the corner lies utopia. So if only we can, you know, eradicate the current status quo and implement the correct systems, then we'll be happy. Whereas conservatives, by, by the definition of the word, seek to conserve something that is of value. There are some deontological principles that we have organized our societies on that are worth fighting for. And therefore, if I am a conservative and I wake up in the morning, existentially at least, I am happy. Whereas the, the woke blue haired person is pissed off because we live in a terrible society. And if only we can turn the corner, we'll find unicornia. <laughs> okay. So, uh, last question on, on happiness correlations before we get to your secrets of life. What is the evidence on happiness and religious faith? Yes, beautiful. Thank you. Uh, so, there is a moderate positive correlation between religiosity and happiness, meaning that on average, the more religious I am, the happier than I am. But I should mention that there could be very earthly reasons for that. It, it, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be explained via a supernatural narrative because religious people, by the very definition of the process of banding with in-group members, it yields greater communality, greater cohesion, greater cooperation and reciprocal arrangements with in-group members. And we are a social species, as I mentioned. The quality of our social relationships is arguably the most important element to being happy. And so it, it makes perfect sense for religious people to, on average, be happier than the irreligious. That said, right after I discuss those findings, I also want to hopefully provide hope to those who, are, who may not be religious. I argue that there are, very, there are many ways by which I could immerse myself in spiritual awe, in a, in a divine appreciation for the majesty of life, even without being religious person. This conversation right now is a spiritual experience. We're engaging in a, in a conversational tango that I think I'm being enriched by engaging in it. If I meet a random person on the street who recognizes me and now we have a 20 minute serendipitous lovely conversation, that is a spiritual experience. When I watch Lionel Messi play, that is a divine experience. And so that doesn't mean that if you are not religious, you are doomed to being unhappy, but it is certainly the case that being religious does boost your happiness. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Okay, now to some of the secrets of a, of a happier life. Yes, sir. In, in what sense is the choice of spouse so important, but also, quote, a compensatory process? How does that yes. work? Yeah, so let me address the second part first. So when, when I say in the book that mate choice is a compensatory process, it's actually an incredibly hopeful message. And let me explain why. Let's suppose that all women in the world said the following statement. I will never choose or mate with any man who is under six feet tall. 
That's a non-compensatory statement. Why? Because it's basically saying that I can't compensate, forgive the pun, for a shortcoming by being great at many other attributes. I could be a great uh, uh, person. I could be very handsome. I could be charming. I could be funny. But unfortunately, if I don't meet the six-foot mark, I'm doomed to a life of frustrated celibacy. Luckily, mate choice is a compensatory process, meaning that m most people will pick a partner that scores well as a bundle. So yes, ideally, it would be great if I'm tall and charming and rich and a neurosurgeon and a prince. But if I'm not tall, but I'm very charming, but I'm ambitious, but I'm hardworking, but I am kind, uh, I'm attentive, I can compensate for that. So yes, there are attributes that we cannot improve our lot on. I can't change my facial symmetry. I can't change my height. But boy, if I'm unemployed and lazy, I could suddenly become assertive and go-getter and get off the couch, and that will certainly increase my chances in the mating market. So that's what I mean by mate choice is a compensatory process. Regarding what are, what is the probably the number one thing that you could do to uh, maximize your chances of having a happy marriage. So here I'm going to refer to two different evolutionary maxims. There is the opposites attract maxim, and then there is the birds of a feather flock together maxim. And it turns out, Mark, that over the long run, choosing someone with whom we assort on life goals, belief systems, foundational attitudes of how to live life uh, are by far the much greater predictor of being in a happy marriage. Opposites attracts works well for short-term mating, right? I may be sexually restrained and sexually, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, introverted. You may be the exact opposite. That complementarity might lead to a, a nice dalliance. But for long-term mating, you really want to adhere to the birds of a feather flock uh, together. Hmm. That, that, that's an example of, of one of those uh, age-old pieces of wisdom that, that, that turn out to be empirically. Faith, another one is the golden mean. You discussed that. It's an old prescription for contentment, but there is some good empirical evidence for it, isn't there, such as the, quote, Yerkes-Dodson law. Well, what's that law? How is that a golden mean proof? Yeah, so just to give the... Uh, background of the golden mean. So the golden mean is something that Aristotle mentioned in uh, his you know, ethical treaties, where he basically argued, let's take, for example, a soldier. If the soldier is very cowardly, that's not a good thing. If the soldier is outrageously reckless in his courage, well, he's going to die very quickly. That's not good either. Somewhere in the middle, or what I call the sweet spot, is the ideal place for the soldier to be. So what I do in that chapter is I argue that the most universal law of nature in terms of pursuing a happy life, a fulfilled life, is to seek that sweet spot across a bewildering number of domains. Alcohol consumption follows the inverted U. Uh, fish consumption follows an inverted U. Exercise intensity follows an inverted U. Uh, mindfulness follows an inverted you. If you're not at all mindful, it's not good. If you're too mindful, you sit there and you know, you're in a retreat for the next 30 years uh, doing nothing other than meditating. And so what I basically do in that chapter is I go through 
uh, at this neuronal level, at the individual level, at the economic level, at the societal level, I demonstrate that so many phenomena are nothing but seeking to find that optimal uh, midpoint. And by the way, it wasn't only Aristotle who talked about this. The Buddhists talk about middle way. Uh, Confucius talks about that, finding that middle spot. Maimonides, the famous Jewish rabbi, physician, and philosopher also recognize that. So again, to your point about ancient wisdoms, the reason why many of these ancient wisdoms get selected and, and are you know, tested through time is precisely because they are so poignant and accurate. So that would be exactly what I'm talking about in that chapter. Yeah. Now, one truth of moderation as sort of a, a, a one path to happiness is the paradox that one should actually be a little moderate or, or at least temper the very pursuit of happiness. Why is that? <laughs> so, happiness itself follows an inverted U, right? But I should, I should mention here, though, uh, that it's not the willful pursuit of happiness. Because, so in the, in, chapter not, in the last chapter, I have a quote by Viktor Frankl where he basically argues, in his case, he's talking about success. He said, you know, don't willfully pursue success. Rather, success is the end result of you having made the right choices. And I argue that happiness follows exactly that quote, right? So I don't wake up in the morning and say, what are the seven domain general ways by which I could try to be happy today? But if I've chosen the right spouse, the one I'm waking up to next to me, if I'm now heading off to a job that fills me with existential glee and purpose and meaning. If I live life as a playground with a playful mindset, then the end result of that will be that I'll be happy. So, so the inverted view of the pursuit of happiness is exactly that. If you, if you don't have any introspection that allows you to, to think about what it is that you need to do to be happy, you're on the wrong end. If you're constantly, willfully trying to implement things artificially to be happy, that's wrong. Just make the right choices, adopt the right mindsets, and then happiness will flow from that. You, you mentioned play uh, a moment ago, and you have a discussion of play, uh, pushing the idea that we should not see this just as a mode of childhood. But uh, if adults play, they develop a capacity that you name adaptive advantage right so play in general across the animal so we we see in many many species there is a developmental period where the juveniles of that species engage in various forms of play in some cases uh, there are there is prey predator play precisely because whether you are a prey species or a predator species you want to be able to develop the, the motor skills, the, the strategies that will eventually serve an evolutionary advantage to you. And so you mimic those mechanisms by, in, by, do, by doing it within your own species as a form of play. Play unlocks creativity. Play offers us all sorts of evolutionary advantages. So there's a great literature within evolutionary psychology that looks at you know, why is it that we have such a desperate need to play? So that's that answers the evolutionary angle. Now, I argue that play, and I'm hardly the first to argue that, play is such an indelible part of our human nature that it is akin to, you know, the need to go to the bathroom or the need to drink or the need to eat. 
And so that's why I say that all other things equal, if you can approach life with a playful mindset, you're well on your way to climbing Mount Happiness. So let me give you an example. So science is obviously an austere pursuit. It's, it's, a, it's an intellectual pursuit. But guess what? Science is nothing but the highest form of cognitive play. Because what am I doing as a scientist? There, there's a bunch of variables that are floating around out there. And I'm trying to solve the puzzle of which variable is correlated to which other variable, which variable causes which other variable. So it's a form of puzzle making. Yeah. So in the same way that I solve a 1,000 piece puzzle with my 11 year old child, when I'm engaging in scientific play, that's what I'm doing. It's fun, it's exciting. When I run a study, I, am, I can't sleep at night because I wanna know what the results are going to be. Is my hypothesis going to be shown to, to be veridical or is it going to be refuted? It's exciting, it's fun, even during war. So I tell the story, Mark, when I grew up in the Lebanese Civil War, I still had a desperate need to play even when death awaited me around every corner. My parents would tell my cousin and I, who was the same age as me, what, if you're going to go outside and play, make sure to never cross a particular imaginary line because that would open you up to the eyesight of the snipers who would blow your brain. So even in the most dire of circumstances, we have a need to play. So just have fun and play. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I when I would work with my son on his English or math homework, I'd always say, just play with the numbers, you know? Just play with words. Just start using them in, in, in funny ways or, or, or being, being that playfulness. It's, it's important. Uh, it's the mental uh, agility that, that, uh, that, well, you know, if you can't do that, that's, that's a hindrance to, to happiness, I'll say. Not just achievement, but just dealing with the world, I, I, I would say. Uh, can, I, before you go on, can I just mention one quick thing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, forgive me. Uh, I recently got into, I mean, maybe I shouldn't even mention this, but I recently got into a huge brouhaha with the Quebec media uh, precisely because they weren't able to instantiate their, their desire to play. I had appeared on the day that the book was released two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I had appeared on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast. And, uh, and, you know, in the conversation, Joe and I were joking, you know, he's a professional comedian, you know, it's lighthearted, we're having fun. And so he had told me that he had just returned from Europe. I said, oh, you know, I, my family and I also returned from Portugal uh, recently uh, on a family vacation. I got to tell you, I'm not a big fan of the Portuguese accent. And then I went on and said, well, you know, one of the languages I speak is Hebrew and Hebrew is violently ugly. That, those were my exact words. And then I said, oh, and when it comes to French Canadian French, you know, I live in, Quebec, in Montreal, Quebec. Well, that's an affront to human dignity. Now, I said that with a complete smile on my face. I'm laughing, I'm joking. That sentence mark, affront to human dignity, is a running gag that I've been using for years and years. Anybody who doesn't love Lionel Messi is an affront to human dignity. Anybody who loves the Beatles is an affront to human dignity. So it's a complete joke. It's I'm being humorous, I'm being playful. Mark, I swear to you, <laughs> if you saw the brouhaha that it caused in Quebec, it was the most important and devastating attack on Quebec society in the history of Quebec. Every single media, every, every television, basically I became public enemy number one. Thank God that we had, we had scheduled a trip to California. I might have not survived the, 
the endless hate. That's not a prescription to how to live a happy life. If you can't take a joke about your accent and it drives you into irrational, demonic hatred, you probably need to read my book. I, I just have one thing to say to that, and that is diversity is our strength. Now, <laughs> you've got a little friction. As our Lord, Justin Trudeau reminds us every minute. Well, I mean, the, this insufferably earnest mama's boy, Justin Trudeau, I mean, the, no, there's no play going on there, but you have a section on, on diversity is our strength. What's, what's your verdict on that, on that little uh, nostrum? Yeah. Well, I also talk about that in my previous book, In the Parasitic Mind, where I take diversity, inclusion, and equity, I arrange it so that it's D-I-E, diversity, inclusion, equity, which means basically the die cult, the die religion, right? Uh, I'm not a fan of it. As you probably know, Mark, it is something that has completely parasitized, I mean, every nook and cranny of society in general, but certainly every nook and cranny of academia. I never receive an email anymore at my university where you're just hailing someone's accomplishment, period, right? It's always, it's the first transgender person of color who's indigenous, who just got an A on their CFA exam. Who cares, right? I, I've never looked at it as I'm the first Lebanese Jewish evolutionary psychologist. I never viewed myself as that. Being Lebanese Jewish is part of my identity. It's a very small part of my identity. I present myself to the world as Gatsad with all my qualities and all my faults. And being Lebanese Jewish is a small part of me. Well, according to Justin Trudeau and his friends, that's a form of Nazism. Uh, the, the book is The Sod Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. There's much more in their discussions of victimhood. Uh, interesting discussion on regret. Uh, was something I suffer from uh, non, non-stop. Anti-fragility, uh, inauthenticity, it, 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 a guidebook uh, in, in the second half, but we, we will leave it there for now. Again, The Sod Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. Professor Saad, thank you for joining us. Oh, what a delight to be with you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.